Welcome to Insight live at noon with a rebroadcast at 7 p.m. Governor Newsom is facing a push for yet another recall. Ahead on Insight, we'll unpack this latest effort and what it will take to get on the ballot. Also, with the primary days away, we're going to dive into one of the more obscure races for local judges and finding out why information on them can be so difficult to find. Plus, Sac State launched its first-ever MMA-based sports program with the help of the Sacramento UFC Hall of Famer. We'll learn about Combat U and what it offers to students both inside and outside the ring. Finally, an explosion of creative expression is happening this weekend in West Sacramento. We're going to get a live in-studio preview of Liminal States. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. That's all coming up today on Insight. First, here's the news. From CAP Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Here we go again. This morning, Governor Newsom was served with an intent to recall. That's according to Politico. The group behind this latest recall effort is Rescue California, citing the state's soaring budget deficit, immigration crisis, public safety, and high taxes as reasons, to name a few. Recall efforts against Newsom and prior governors are really, they're nothing new. But you may remember that the latest attempt on Newsom, it actually made it to the ballot back in 2021, and Governor Newsom easily defeated the recall by a margin of 61 percent to 38 percent. Cap Radio politics reporter Nicole Nixon just returned from the state capitol and is here to tell us more about this latest recall attempt. Good afternoon, Nicole. Hello. So what has Governor Newsom said? Well, he tweeted this morning, I'll just quote it, Uh, Trump Republicans are launching another wasteful recall campaign to distract us from the existential fight for democracy and reproductive freedom. We will defeat them. End of tweet. Um, This is a similar strategy that Newsom took during the 2021 recall, tying the recall proponents to former President Trump, who's politically toxic for anyone in California who's not a Republican, and saying it's a distraction from the important work he's trying to do. The group behind this latest effort is called Rescue California. What do you know about them? Well, this group formed during the 2021 recall of the governor um, that, you know, qualifying a recall is something that takes a lot of organization. Um, And even though that recall was not successful, they have stayed together um, and are, you know, here's their latest effort to recall Newsom. They are listing a lot of the same reasons from that Uh, that first recall. And it's really hard to believe that this was three years ago now. Uh, They're talking about immigration. It's arguably even more of a political issue for Democrats now. Public safety, also arguably a bigger political issue for Democrats now. Uh, They're pointing to this big budget deficit, which has grown to $73 billion. Um, And there are some differences between this this current recall attempt um, and the first one. It's it's really worth pointing out that the 2021 recall, um, it was kind of a perfect storm. There was the pandemic going on. Um, they were able to go to a judge and say that get a, because of the pandemic, um, they got an extension on signature gathering. So they had months of additional time to get those signatures. This was around the exact same time that the governor was spotted at this posh Napa restaurant, the French Laundry. This was the exact same time he was telling people to stay home because of COVID-19. So that made people very angry. And that was just all these perfect conditions that allowed for that recall in 2021. Now, qualifying a recall of a statewide official is a huge challenge. Um, it'll be a, a really big hurdle for them to replicate that, but it's not impossible. Mm. So actually making it onto the ballot, a recall attempt, is one thing and is rare, as you say. But actually pushing for recalls, I mean, Governor Newsom has received multiple attempts, and I think this goes back many, many governors. All governors face recall pushes at some point. Correct. Uh, here's... Um, The Secretary of State's website says since 1913, there have been 180 recall attempts of state elected officials in California. Eleven recall efforts uh, collected enough signatures to qualify for the ballot. And the official was recalled in six instances. So the last 
110 years, 180 attempts, six successful recalls in California. Okay, yeah. So that's just like a fraction of a percentage in, you know, roughly a century. So the group behind this latest effort, Rescue California, they say they have like hundreds of people lined up as official proponents for this recall. I would imagine it's going to take a lot more than that to actually qualify. So walk us through the process of what would need to happen. Yeah, at the very beginning of a recall attempt, it's a lot of administrative stuff. Um, It starts by serving papers to the elected official of an intent to recall them from office. Basically, they're saying officially, we don't like your performance. We are going to collect signatures to try to remove you. That is what is happening today. From there, uh, Newsom has a chance to respond officially to this petition. That will be filed with the Secretary of State. And I think this would this is the response that would go in a voter guide if this does go to an election. Um, there's some like approval and a bit of waiting here, but then the group can begin gathering signatures. They have 160 days to gather signatures. Um, 160 days from today is early August. So that is about the timeline we're looking at. And to recall a statewide official like the governor, they need to gather signatures equal to 12 percent of votes cast during the last election for that office. So in this case, that equals signatures from just over 1.3 million registered California voters. So it's a huge undertaking. Again, they did it before, but they had very favorable conditions and more time because of the pandemic. Finally, Nicole, I mean, a recall doesn't have to make it onto the ballot to have an impact. What kind of impact do you think this could have on on Governor Newsom's time, energy, focus and just priorities? Well, for now, not a huge impact for him. Um, You know, he's going to submit a response Um, right now. He can already point to it and say, Uh, look, they're trying to remove me again, Uh, you know, campaign and fundraise off it. But certainly, you know, once this does or if this does qualify for the ballot, then it becomes a huge problem for Newsom. He spent tons of millions fighting the recall in 2021. Nicole, thank you for the update. Thanks. That is Cap Radio state politics reporter Nicole Nixon. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. Well, on the note of elections, we are about a week to the primary. And for those of you with unfinished ballots, myself included, it is crunch time to do our homework and research candidates. The bigger ticket candidacies for state and local office can be easier when it comes to the lift, when it comes to accessing voter information. But other races on the ballot can be more difficult, especially when it comes to superior court judges. Higher judicial offices like the state Supreme Court, appeals court, are appointed by the governor. But more local county positions can be decided on by voters. And finding information on these candidates can be quite difficult. We're going to unpack why voters elect local judges in the first place, as well as leave with some resources for voters to make an informed decision. Here to tell us more about the system of judicial appointments and elections in California is Mary Beth Moylan, the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Experiential Learning at the University of Pacific's McGeorge School of Law. Professor Moylan, good afternoon. Good afternoon. So let's start with the big picture. I know for myself, you know, when I am am going through my ballot, when I see judicial races, I mean, it's really hard to make a decision to find to make an informed decision when it is actually on the ballot. When election time comes around, why isn't there more information about judicial candidates available to voters and the public? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's really rooted in the idea that our judicial elections are nonpartisan elections. They're intentionally removed from the political process in some ways. We want our judges to be impartial. We want them not to be beholden to political causes or to individuals who might have given money for their campaign. And so um, there is a whole canon and code of judicial ethics that really prevents judges and judicial candidates from making a lot of statements that touch on the politics. And so at at its very heart, we we have a system where the judiciary is supposed to be removed. It's not the political branch. Um, And so it ends up being hard for judges to campaign for office. And it ends up being difficult for voters to really have a sense of what that particular judicial candidate stands for 
or um, what they would do if they are elected. Hmm. But some or a lot, I would say most judges are appointed. You know, the California State Supreme Court, uh, the appellate court, those judges are appointed by the governor. Why do voters decide on more local positions for, for, for a judge? So the interesting thing is that as a practical matter, um, most judges only sit for a retention election. So as you mentioned, the state Supreme Court, the state Court of Appeals judges or justices is what they're called at the appellate level. They are appointed by the governor. They're vetted through a process called the Jenny Commission that determines whether they're well qualified for office, and then they're appointed. That same Jenny Commission actually does review candidates for the superior court or the the lowest level trial court or county superior courts. The Jenny Commission also reviews candidates for those seats if they are appointed. Um, So let me step back a minute and say the appeals court justices are appointed and then they sit for retention election every 12 years. The superior court judges are able to be elected they all they have uh, six year terms. If they resign or retire or uh, die or in any other way leave office during their six year term, the governor then appoints a replacement. As a practical matter, almost all of those um, judicial seats, even in the county superior courts, are filled by the governor through the Jenny Commission process where there is a merit evaluation. And so the only time that the lower court judges are actually elected is when a seat comes open and the governor has not had an opportunity to refill it because the candidate has stayed on for their entire six-year term and then has not put in a notice of intent or a declaration of candidacy to run to retain their seat. So many judges stay for their full six-year term, but then they declare their intention to retain their seat. And we never see those um, elections come onto our ballot unless they are contested. So many judges at the Superior Court level are rolling over. And when they do retire, the governor appoints their replacement. Mm. And if that replacement, if they want to continue past, you know, the the term that they were appointed for, run for a new term, if they have a challenger, does that then go to the ballot? Yes, it does. Yes. If they declare their candidacy and someone else um, declares that they wish to run against them, then that would go to the ballot. Also, if they finish their six-year term and do not declare their candidacy, that becomes an open seat. And that's what we have here. So the in Sacramento County right now, we're looking at a judicial election for the Sacramento County Superior Court. There are three candidates. And all of those three people saw that there was an open seat. Someone had finished their term and did not declare an intention to run again. And so those three lawyers in our community put their name in, declared that they would like to run for the open seat. So that's what we're facing right now. Mm. You know, it, it now, the, I guess in Sacramento County, as you mentioned, there is a race underway. Voters are going to make a decision. They may not know really all the ins and outs of what a superior court judge does. I mean, why are these elected in this case, this elected position? Why is it important? It's really so important. Um, So our judges of the Superior Court are judges that will hear any type of case. Uh, State courts are courts of general jurisdiction. So the Superior Court judges, they hear criminal cases, they hear civil cases. Some of them serve um, on the family court, so they might hear divorces or child custody cases. Some of them serve in the probate courts, so they would hear um, they would uh, deal with wills and trusts and hear will contests. And so, the judges of the superior court have a hand in deciding disputes between all sorts of people in our county. So it's a really important role. And um, but I will also acknowledge that for many listeners, they would say, well, how 
can I get information about who these people are? And the answer is it's not easy <laughs> because they, they, for the most part, are not actively campaigning because they don't want to make any statements that would be perceived as showing their biases or showing how they might rule in a case that would come before them. The Code of Judicial Ethics, Canon 5, says that candidates for a judgeship or judicial officers cannot make and should not make any statements that would give um, an indication of how they might rule in a case that might come before them. And as I just mentioned, any number of kinds of cases can come before these judges. And so for the most part, judicial candidates are very careful to not um, to not prejudge anything that would come before them. So how would you go about doing research on a judicial candidate? So um, so I'm lucky in that I'm a lawyer in the Sacramento legal community, and I happen to know all of the candidates. Um, but if I were not someone who is a lawyer or, or who had uh, lawyer friends who might know the judges personally, they all three do have websites. Um, and so a Google search of any of the three names will come up with their um, website for their judicial candidacy. Sometimes county bar associations will do a review of the candidates. Sacramento County Bar does not, as far as I have been able to find, have any judicial nominations or judicial um, candidate reviews. Some of the other counties around California will do kind of an objective and neutral analysis of judicial candidates, but we don't have one. Um, Ballotpedia is a website that does often uh, cover judicial races as well as all other races involving candidates. They don't have a particularly robust review right now of the three candidates. So my my best advice is to look at their websites and see what their backgrounds are. Um, we we have three very different candidates. I'll just say that um, that one of the candidates has been a district attorney, um, so has more of a criminal background. One of the candidates is a family law attorney, a family law specialist, so has um, that practice area background. And the third candidate has held a number of different positions and worked in the legislative arena and also is now an administrative law judge. So you have three very different legal backgrounds represented in the particular election that uh, we're, we're faced with. For this Fi primary. Finally, as I'm learning from you, I mean, the whole intention of of, you know, having um, an impartial judge makes it difficult for a voter to make a decision if they are in the position of having to elect a superior court judge. You know, do you think it is sound advice if that voter just kind of leaves that election empty on, on the ballot because they just can't make an informed decision? Yeah, I mean, I will say I am a big proponent of people voting. So it's really hard for me to suggest that people should not vote. But I do feel like in this arena, it, it's if you feel like you can't make an informed decision, sometimes it is the best policy to say, I just don't have enough information. And so um, leaving it blank is, is definitely an option. Mm -hmm. Professor Moylan, thank you so much. Learned a lot. Thank you. <laughs> Mary Beth Moylan is the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Experiential Learning at the University of Pacific's McGeorge School of Law, which is based here in Sacramento. We've been talking about judicial elections and appointments here in California and why you may or may not see them on your ballot. And just a note for transparency, McGeorge is a financial supporter of CAP Radio. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, CAP Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Hi, 
Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Sac State is adding one of the newest mainstream sports to its athletic department. Mixed martial arts, MMA, is roughly 30 years old, and Sac State has launched the first-ever university combat sports program for boxing, wrestling, Muay Thai, and Jiu-Jitsu. It's called Combat U, short for Combat Sports and Martial Arts University, and it's a partnership between Sac State and UFC Hall of Famer Uriah Faber, a.k.a. the California kid who now owns and runs Ultimate Fitness, an MMA training facility and gym up the street from campus. The sport officially launches at Sac State in the fall semester. Sacramento State President Luke Wood, who is also an amateur boxer, and Uriah Faber explain how Combat U will go beyond the ring or octagon, creating new opportunities for students and athletes. Uriah and President Wood, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having us. So, President Wood, I want to start with you because you just completed like your first semester at Sac State. Um, and this is a first ever partnership that Sac State is undertaking. I mean, this kind of happened right out of the gate for you. When did this begin? When did the wheels start turning? Well, it began really with a, a student who had reached out to me. So after I had been selected to serve as president, like lots of students from Sacramento State were reaching out and saying, you know, congratulations or looking forward to meeting you. And one was a student who had been accepted but hadn't started. Her name is Aranjot, um, and from India. And she had mentioned that she's she's coming to Sac State, and she had saw that I had like a bunch of videos of me boxing, and she had said, "Hey, I'm into uh, combat sports as well. I do jujitsu." And I said, "Well, you know, that's interesting that you do jujitsu. Do you know that we're right next door to one of the best MMA gyms?" not in the country, but in the world, Uriah Faber's Ultimate Fitness. And she said, yeah, I know. That's why I'm coming. <laughs> and so I realized that there is a group of students who come to Sacramento State because you know, they can get high-quality academic learning, but then our proximity to one of the best MMA gyms in the world. And so that's what kind of began like the idea behind it. And then it was meeting with, with Uriah and just having conversations that led to, well, why don't we make a thing a thing and create the first collegiate pathway into professional combat sports. Well, Uriah, that brings me to you. I mean, some may look at your trajectory and be like, why is this even needed? I mean, you're hometown grown, you're a college graduate, NCAA wrestler, went pro in the MMA, UFC Hall of Famer, you own Ultimate Fitness, founder of Team Alpha Male, the list goes on and on and on. From your perspective, what are the benefits of having a collegiate combat sports program? Well, you know, to the point of uh, President Wood, you know, people are already starting to come here and a lot of times they have to put their academics on hold to pursue this dream. And I, I can name, you know, fighter after fighter that has come here. Corey McKenna is a good example. She's one of our coaches who's currently in the UFC, a young lady that was bright and had opportunities to go to college. She, she decided not to do that and come here instead to pursue her fight career at 17, 18 years old. So this school or mixed martial arts school is kind of like her college but she's a definitely the type of person that could have you know done both and also use some aid and some assistance and some guidance because our sport's so new that there hasn't been a real pathway to the pro leagues we're coming up on our i think we just passed our 30th anniversary in the sport when you look at other sports in the world that's very, very, that's a little infant baby of a sport, really. And so, um, you know, we're helping to, to pave the way in a real process and a real pathway to becoming a professional. For me, I was a, I was, I was a college athlete, and I got so much out of that, that process. Not only uh, did it help me with meeting great people, understanding about responsibility, getting acclimated to an environment that was different than, than I had grown up, you know, um, got in a little bit of trouble, had to, you know, focus and, and, um, 
and it has helped me become a businessman, become a mentor, become uh, a father, like all the things that that I learned in college go beyond the fight game. And so I think that's important for people and it hasn't been offered in the past. Yeah. Proximity is also so key in this. I mean, President Wood, for people who are unaware, I've been to Ultimate Fitness. It is a very impressive facility, but it's like walking distance from the Folsom entrance to Sac State. Yeah. And that proximity, I think, is what makes this possible because there's not a lot of uh, institutions in the country that would have enough proximity to a high quality MMA gym or high quality boxing gym or other type of gym where they could make something like this work. So proximity, I think, was important. But the second part is Uriah himself. Right. You got a UFC Hall of Famer, one of the best to ever be in the game but also has a business mind, right? And I and I think we want to have it so that when students graduate from Sacramento State and they're part of this, that they don't think about it as the, the fight game, but the fight business, because we want them to be able to be at a point where they can negotiate their own contracts. We want them to understand that there's different elements to it, right? Because some people may want to come and compete, but there's also like opportunities for those who just want to be part of the sphere of mixed martial arts. Maybe they want to be part of the press side. Maybe they want to be part of the sports therapy side. Maybe they want to be part of the business side. There's multiple aspects to it. So thinking about not just how this can benefit those who are the athletes, but those who want to work in some sphere around professional combat sports. Mm. You just announced this last month in January at the start of the year. Combat U, I believe, will officially launch in the fall. Training, I think, has begun this month or will very soon. This is so new, but logistically, how does this work? I mean, do you have to work with the CSU system? Is this wrapped into the overall athletic program at Sacramento State? Yeah, actually, it is wrapped into the athletic program. So think about it like this. We have uh, sports in boxing, Muay Thai and kickboxing, jiu-jitsu and wrestling moved under athletics. So managed under our athletics department under Mark Orr and Hector, um, who's coming from um, Uriah Faber's Ultimate Fitness, uh, who's also a professional combat athlete himself. And then essentially, we have uh, rooms that we've set aside on campus, the big, large, um, open rooms. One is going to be a grappling room for wrestling, judo, jiu-jitsu, and then one is a striking room. And then essentially, uh, we will very shortly begin open workout sessions. Students will come. They'll be able to train. And this is for all levels. Like some people, they may want to just come and work out and just learn about this. Some people may want to compete at the collegiate level, collegiate boxing, collegiate MMA, collegiate uh, judo or jujitsu. And then some people will have the the distinct, incredible privilege and honor of being able to be part of the pro prep team. And I don't know, Ryan, if you want to mention what that's going to happen there. Yeah. So so the thing that, that are unique about this, this situation is the four club teams and boxing and wrestling have club team you know, kind of a protocol and and competitions, etc. For the kickboxing and the and the jiu-jitsu, we're going to be creating a schedule for them, so they have like a season, which is great for aspiring uh, professionals that want to get more experience. The competition's huge with the backing of the university and and a real schedule set out with coaches, etc. is important. So the pro prep team will be for those students that show promise, interest, and are able to go to the the blending of all these because these are the cornerstones of our sport mixed martial arts mma they call it mixed martial arts is is anything that really works in a fight within a set of rules so we're going to have a pro prep team all of our coaches that are coaches of the club teams will also be hands-on in the pro prep team to help develop talent and move them up to the actual pro team so that'll be that'll be rare like uh Erin Jote, who we already spoke about, she is already in the pro prep team. And I've got uh, two other soon-to-be Sac State members that are already here from different countries that are already part of the pro team. So we're going to have club teams with seasons, coaches, and a budget to help them uh, get their skill set where they need to be. Then we're going to have a a hybrid, mixed, hands-on development team, which is is really important and unique because as a professional athlete, uh, in, a, in, a, in a gym that caters to professional athletes. The guy that walks in with the most potential gets the most attention right away from these coaches that are going to partake in their careers, get paid privates, etc. This changes the whole game where now our goal is to have high-level coaching to develop the kids that need it, mm. not the one that's the most valuable right now, the most 
the person that shows the most potential has gone through the process, getting their education, and can really become in a in a short span of time with great coaching and a great system, uh, one of the best fighters on the planet. You bring up such a good point when you said that. I mean, it, this is a relatively new sport when you compare it to, you know, like football or baseball or basketball, what have you. But having it at a collegiate level really bridges this gap that that existed for for MMA fighters, hopefuls or just people who love the sport. And it could lead to to other careers, related careers surrounding the sport as well. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've talked about and I've been talking with uh, President Wood about the process is actually eventually having a combat university degree, which will, in my mind, be more towards business and entrepreneurship because there's so many different ways that you can um, skin this cat. Even Herb Dean, who's a good friend of mine, one of the best referees in the game, he has his refereeing gig, which has given him a platform, but he runs his own business running seminars on, on refereeing and he uh, makes great money there. He gets to travel the world as a, as a ref. But he also has has learned to take his skill set. I mean, a funny story. My first fight that I was ever at live was one of my high school uh, football teammates who fought Herb Dean at the Calusa Casino when it was illegal in California. And so I, I got to see Herb as one of my first introductions to this fight game. But everybody knows him as a referee, and I know him as a businessman and somebody that's thinking outside the box. So for us, I'd like to see eventually a combat university degree, which is going to include marketing it's going to include some finance it's going to include you know some of the some of the cornerstones of of success in life that these guys need anyways you know you're me i'm my own brand you know uh, i've got guys that are now operating their own small gyms i've got people that are uh in the manufacturing side of things i've got you know one of our guys that has the robot we've we've been selling the first ever robot that he's been making um like out, to, of his, to out of his spar garage. with or yeah to spar. it's incredible actually <laughs> wow that is awesome and given that Sac State is the first ever university to undertake a partnership like this. Do you think that this could eventually become part of the NCAA or other collegiate divisions? I'll let Rui answer that one first. So, so I think anything is possible, but that's you know that's a lifelong you know. Right now, President Luke Wood is making his goal is to make Sac State the best place on the planet. My goal is to create the best fighters on the planet. So I think. There's a time and a place where someone will focus on that and make that their goal. But for me, I don't feel like we're competing with other colleges. We're competing with everyone in the whole world for fighting. This is not, hey, let's be the best in college. This is let's be the best fighters in the world. And Sac State's the place you go to get your education and get yourself on that pathway and to get yourself involved in the sport. I would love to have this be a trend that we can help deploy across the nation and hopefully the world. And I think we're, we're up for that. Um, we have to figure out what that looks like. But for us, we're trying to make Sac State the most unique place with the best uh, assets to, to get people where they want to be and have them have success in, in life. And, and for me, I'm doing that through mixed martial arts and creating careers in all different aspects of, of the sport. And what other university in the world could a student apply to where not only they could compete or they could just go watch and be a fan of mixed martial arts or professional boxing or professional combat sports, no other place. And so that makes us distinctive and makes it so that we're out front. And so could something like that happen in the future? Maybe. But we definitely know that we're going to be the leaders in this because we're the only ones that reside in this space and we're doing it the right way with the right people around the table. But the other thing that I think is important about this is why have it managed through athletics, right? Why not just have these be club teams, right? We could do that. Well, the reason for that is this. When they're managed through athletics as club teams under athletics, they have access to the highest quality of our concussion protocols that we see with like football and other higher risk sports. They have access to our physical trainers, to our sports therapy, to our weight rooms, to all the things that make it so that we're prioritizing athlete safety because they're not just athletes, they're student athletes. And so we want to make sure. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is that we already have students who are doing this, right? We mentioned students who, like, we mentioned Aaron Jot, but we also have, like, Ethan, right? He's fighting on a March March 2nd card in Stockton, right? So there's already students who are doing this. So what what did we do? We made a thing a thing with the best people in the sport with your eye favor. Have you received any response from other universities? I know it's been, you're like a month into announcing this. 
Uh, yeah, we've received a response from other universities. In fact, um, we've got some events that we're looking at in terms of competitions with them. Not ready to announce any of that uh, here today, but uh, there's definitely interest from other institutions in being able to compete. Most of that has been around individual sports, like we mentioned, you know, the boxing, the kickboxing, the jujitsu and the wrestling. But there's also other opportunities for us as well. And so eventually you'll be seeing it. What yeah. has been the response been, uh, Uriah, to just overall when you're talking with people within the UFC MMA community to something like this? Oh, people are excited. You know, ESPN was the one that broke the news, which is a big deal. And, um, you know, it's made waves across the across the nation, across the world, um, people are coming here. I mean, I think we have like 600 people that are interested, which is, is gotta be great for, I don't know what the, the usual bump in, in, um, you know, applicants for the school is, but that's gotta be pretty substantial. And to the, uh, president Woods point earlier, um, what he's doing, what he's poning up to do is something that, uh, the leaders in our sport did that changed the whole trajectory. Dana White, Lorenzo and Frank Fertitta, they took a sport that was, failing and rugged and and you know I, i've met the the previous owners of the ufc just a little history of ufc the ufc was uh some hollywood producers the bjj family the gracies um trying to prove that their their sport was the best for combat uh some promoters you know some some guys they were going to do you know a moat with with alligators around and, and barbed wire fence and all this kind of <laughs> stuff when Lorenzo and Frank Fertitta, who are, you know, billionaires and extremely educated business guys and Dana White came together, the first thing that they did was put regulation in, in the works. They became part of the Boxing Commission. That's what, that was the, the very beginning of the change. They made rules to make it safer. The things that we're doing at the university level is what changed the sport and made it a sport today. So this is another huge step. And we've got, uh, you know, a, a guy that's thinking outside the box that, that loves our sport and sees the value in it. It's, it's you know, if, if you know President Luke Wood's, uh, you know, history, this is something that's probably helped save him and, and helped uh, drive him in the right direction and, and put him here with us today, uh, an enjoyment and a participation in a, in a sport like boxing. So um, for me, I'm excited about what this can do for the future. And there's a lot of different pieces of this thing that aren't ready to announce yet that are going to really make it unique. And, and uh, so we're excited for that. Yeah, I see you nodding along with that. Like what did boxing, what did it provide for you? I mean... Boxing is an outlet. I mean, being in a in a position as a uh, administrator in a college or university is a very you know it's a high stress position. Uh, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of uh, really technical challenges that you have to work your way through. And so um, when I was actually at my previous institution is when I started boxing, and really it was just training initially to to lose weight. And um, and that's what I did. And I lost a lot of weight doing it because there's nothing more high intensity than that and probably wrestling. Yeah. And then I saw these, you know, these folks in, in the in the ring and I saw them sparring. And I said to the coach one day, I was like, well, I want to try that. And he says, well, we haven't been training for that. We've just been training to lose weight. And I was like, well, I want to try to do that. And he's like, OK. So then we started training for me to compete. And then uh, that led to me being able to, to do some some bouts. And so I trained pretty much every single day. I try to spar every single weekend, and um, it's one of the the best outlets that that you can have, both for your your mental, your your ability to process information, retain information, your attentional control. It's great for your psychologically and reduction of anxiety, anger, anger suppression, but it's also just good for you physiologically, just physically, your ability to be able to to sleep at night, your um, ability to be able to um, just have a healthy lifestyle. And then, so if you think about like what athletics does in general for someone, it's, it's that, but it's plus some because combat sports is just a different level. And so it's been one of the best things for me. And I, and I think about like our students, a lot of our students, they struggle with anxiety, stress, depression, and what would be a better outlet for those things than be able to either just work out or be able to compete in um, in combat sports? And the other thing that, that comes to mind with me, why this is so important, is, you know, I spend a lot of time in boxing gyms, a lot of time. And when I go into a boxing gym, oftentimes it's low-income students, um, never been to college, never thought about college, parents have never been to college, and they're there just trying to make a better life for themselves and for their families. And I want to be able to go and say to that student, you know what? You are college material. 
why don't you come box for Sacramento State? Why don't you come roll for Sacramento State? Why don't you come wrestle for Sacramento State? And now we're going to be able to do that. We're going to create a pathway to college for people who would have never thought that they could do so. And again, we're only able to do that because of, of this partnership with Uriah. I agree about the benefits. I practiced Muay Thai for about four to five years outside of college. I missed high school sports. And I loved not only like the discipline you got, but the camaraderie within a fighting gym as well. Just looking up like Buakau videos like right before our, <laughs> yeah. our interview, like, going back uh, many, many years ago. But finally, Uriah, I mean, you've been in this now for two decades. You have seen the sport grow exponentially. How does it feel to be a part of this next step in history man it feels great and it's it's funny because if you look back on my uh career as a fighter and also as a uh as a business guy or just someone that's adding to the sport i get a lot of credit because of the sport is so new and i was you know a, a part of that but uh one thing that i had done about 11 years ago was uh, i started a website called mma draft and we did the first ever combines mm -hmm. so this was something that i knew i, I was scratching the surface of okay what does this sport need and um unfortunately i had a partner that was the financier behind that who passed away tragically and and we had six events we had them at the ufc uh uh convention uh we had uh we went we took them to different locations statewide and we had winners and whatnot where we were actually doing a combine that gave opportunity for people to showcase their skill set and try to kind of map out how how do you do this thing because there was no map and um this is a huge step in in the right direction some of the other things that we're working on are are going to put the sport forward and and it feels good because i know um i'm seeing it firsthand the people that are affected already you know i there's archer from chechnya from uh, russia and we have aaron jolt from from india and we've got uh, all these other we've got uh jafar who just turned 18 he's here from from berlin and morocco we've got frosty cortez who's who's been with us since he's 15 and he's right here in sacramento and, and one of our brightest uh future stars so um these guys are going to have an opportunity to do something that no one else did get some aid and 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 get smarter and more savvy about life and in, in addition to being a dangerous weapon and uh and that's exciting and making a living Uriah President Wood, thank you. Thank you. All right, awesome. Excited for fall. That is Sac State President Luke Wood and UFC Hall of Famer Uriah Faber talking about Combat U, the first ever university training ground for college students who want to pursue mixed martial arts, MMA. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Inside on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. If you are craving creativity, there is an opportunity to immerse yourself this weekend. All City Writers is a collective of local performers, and this Saturday, March 2nd, they're celebrating two years with an ensemble of performances exploring mental health, ancestry, family, and love through one-person shows. It is called Liminal States, and it's happening at the West Sacramento Black Box Theater. Joining us are Nicole Limon the director of Liminal States, as well as poets, Natachi Mez and David Lorette de Mola, who goes by and yes. Welcome to you all. Good afternoon. Thank Hi. you so much. Yeah, what a us. treat. Okay, Natachi, I want to start with you. Uh, tell us about Liminal States. Yes. So this is a group show we'll be having. So Liminal States was something we decided on while we were working with the themes of all the artists that are involved and just that state of sort of in-betweenness of navigating what seems often like conflicting emotions and mm -hmm. states, right? So navigating both grief and love together, mm -hmm. um, loss, 
and also being found in that loss. Um, so it was it was a name that we all ended up voting on. We did a brainstorm, and we felt that that really resonated with the stories that we were seeking to tell for our All City Writers collective show. Well, and I would love to learn more about All City Writers. David, how did this become into existence? <laughs> yeah. So we all started off in spoken word and doing poetry around town. And there's so much offered for new people. You can go to the Sacramento Poetry Center. You can go to Silver Linings. Uh, uh, Mahogany, I think, is is back around. Mm-hmm. Yeah? yeah. So, like, there's so many offerings. But for people who are established, who have been around in the scene for a bit and really know what they're doing, we tend to just kind of go, okay, here you go. You're off in the wild. Good luck. And I really wanted to establish something so that when people are coming up, they can have somewhere to go and create work that is professional and they can take out into the world. That was my goal personally with it. And now, you know, almost two years in, you know, you have a lot to look back on and something to celebrate uh, this weekend on Saturday. Nicole, you're the director of Liminal States. What should people expect when they go take it all in on Saturday? So I've been fortunate to actually be in the audience for their first two shows, <laughs> and it is overwhelmingly joyous and beautiful. There's such a range of the stories that they're telling, but I think the most that we can expect is the embodiment of this poetry, the embodiment of these words, and the Uh, diverse styles of writing that they're using. So there are things that are very energetic and high. Natachi's is this beautiful, flowing, I mean, so visceral. Um, We have actually a duo piece, two solo writers who have come together to create a two-hander, performing, acting like a traditional play. Um, And then uh, David's solo piece, which is just a really beautiful journey with film and sound and voiceover. So it's really being able to see the range of styles, but also the embodiment of these beautiful, beautiful poets, uh, their work on stage. That's wonderful. And and there's a total of six performers of poets, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And what I love about this is every show people have said how diverse and different each set is. So kind of like what Nicole was saying, uh, you'll get a little bit of dance in this. You'll get a little bit of music in this. You'll get a little bit of me breaking the fourth wall a bit, talking about depression, a little bit of everything for everyone. Well, let's give listeners a little bit of a taste of all the creativity and just all the work that y'all do. Natachi, I'd love if you could share something. Yes, I can do. This is an excerpt from a piece uh, titled The Land Laughed. As we sing a sustainability, let us ask, sustainable for who? Sustaining what? There is murder in the extraction of precious metals, pulling coltan and cobalt out of the Congo like teeth when a filling would do. In the words of Saul Williams, coltan as cotton, coltan as coltan as cotton, lineage of extraction, this is what got us here, makes it hard to, (sighs) makes it hard to, (sighs) cycles. Cycles I've seen, cycles, cycles I've seen, birth at a funeral. Decay transformed to feast. Baptism is everywhere there is water. You, sacred sacrilege, God and flesh had a number. I don't know anyone who is not a song. Multiplication is division. The sum of me is the sum of us. Some of us have been likened to denominators on the bottom holding the weight of the whole world. Holes here. Here, hierarchy is broken structure, crashing in on its own hypocrisies. Hypotheses have been crafted from these ruins. Everywhere a funeral, never an elegy unsung. It is in the hiss of the wind, the ache of opened mouth soil, swallowing, swallowing, Something is still born here. Oh, my. Yeah. What a gift. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, what? how did being part of this collective, All City Writers, how did it really shape your approach as in performance poetry? Yes, I would say that in my practice as a performance poet, I think the body has always been something that is very essential to me um, as someone who <laughs> finds a lot of comfort on a dance floor. <laughs> um, my body was something that I think I always really engaged with as a poet. But I think because of all city writers 
deep engagement with theater arts, it made me move more, really think about the entire space I have. I think often with a mic as a performance poet, you might find yourself Mm -hmm. just somewhat standing there with the mic stand. And I, while very comfortable with that, I think it has allowed me to stretch my body even further, to really imagine the spaces I'm in and embody them deeper. And and think about production, I think, in an even more thorough way. And I think being a part of All City Writers then gave me even more inspiration to set out with other production goals mm-hmm. and really think about the entire experience from when you enter a space. What do you feel? What do you hear? How might you connect to those around you? And feel a sense of nourishment by being in this space. I love that. You know, we only have like a minute and a half left. And I would love, David, if you can send us off with, <laughs> yeah. with, a, with some of your work. Absolutely. If it cuts me off, uh, just watch the show, right? Come on out. We'd love to have you. Tinyurl.com slash L-S-A-C-W. That's the ticket link. Tonight. In this very ring, we witness a veritable David versus Goliath as tonight, one man wrestles his own depression to pinfall or submission. Listen as the crowd noise simmers just above silence and anticipation. Man waits, already in the ring, as depression comes out to full fanfare. A gold belt and an entourage of anxiety and a whole lot of swagger as he slides in the ring so smooth his chest barely grazes the canvas. The bell rings, the roar of the audience, the man backs his opponent into the corner, slams depression in the mat, covers for the pin for the first time in his entire existence. It feels like he just might win. The arena shakes from the roar of it all as the ref counts the pinfall. One, two, depression shoves man off. Springs off the ropes, bores itself through man's chest. Stunned silence once again as the ref counts one, two, Three, and the audience leaves. Goes back to their families. As man lays in the ring, a broken heap of bones, beaten, but still breathing. And in the morning, he laces his boots for the day's fight to come, and he knows he won't win, but he keeps trying. Because someday, he might. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Ten seconds left. Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Have a great day. This event is on Saturday. We have all the information on our website. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank <laughs> Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.